Hello and welcome to another edition of Webinar Extra. This is where we bring you some more time with one of our webinar presenters so that we can answer some of those additional questions that, well, there just wasn't enough time for during the live event. Think of it as the dessert to the main course. You mean the bonus track at the end of the album. I mean the podcast after the night before. And if you haven't already seen the webinar, then you can head to our college online learning page and check it out. Or you can just keep listening, nodding sagely while you wonder what everyone is banging on about. The choice is yours. We hope you enjoy the programme. So Polly, we've managed to catch up with you on your day off and you've kindly said that you'll, you'll answer remaining questions from our webinar. Um, let's get started. First question that came through was relating to floaters and I think one of the cases that you discussed during the webinar was how can you tell if you're performing an OCT whether it's floaters that are obscuring the image or making it a poor quality can? Yeah, so um, essentially um, I suppose that the easy answer to that is that I, I will have noted that the patient's got floaters during the, the normal eye examination. I'd have seen them on slit lamp uh, routine and um, and Volk. So I guess I, I'm, it's in the back of my mind that they are there as a potential influence on the scan. Um, but in addition to that, um, you can actually see them um, on the scan itself. So as you uh, move across the B scan results, um, you'll be able to see evidence of posterior floaters actually uh, coming in and out of, of view on the B scan as you move across that. And um, I think most OCT scanners also have a, a shadow gram. And if you look at the shadow gram, uh, the floaters are really, really easy to, to see. So I always like to put the shadow gram on um, if I've got... Um, something that I'm concerned about, you know, maybe uh, looks like thin um, nerve fiber layer around the optic nerve head. If you put the shadowgram over the top of it and there's a great big floater just where you've got the nerve fiber layer thinning, that would make me immediately suspicious thinking, actually, this could be a floater simply getting in the way of our measurements uh, and not actually a thin nerve fiber layer uh, reading at that point. And that's when I would always dilate and repeat the scan. And when you're performing the scan, can you actually see the floaters moving in the live view? Yeah, you can actually. Um, certainly, when 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 you're taking the scan itself, you will be able to see them on the infrared image. Um, so that that's the other thing. If if you're carrying out the scan yourself, then you'll see them. Um, if if you've got a, a member of your team carrying out the scan, it's really important that they uh, are aware of. of uh, floaters and, and how to find them so that they can point out to you if they encountered that problem when they were taking the scan. And it would be presumably the same as if you were doing bulk lens, you would literally just wait for them to move out of the way and then repeat the scan exactly again? Exactly that. Yeah, and so sometimes actually if you think, well, the scan would be a pretty good quality if it weren't for that floater right in the way, then I do get the, the patient just to sort of, you know, move their head around, move their eyes around, um, just, just to see if we can shift it out of the way uh, and then repeat the scan without dilating them. Okay, thank you very much. Second question from a member. Can you describe what changes that you might see in a patient with um, MS when they're in their yeah. OCT? Absolutely. So, of course, the thing that we uh, worry about in um, MS patients is optic neuritis uh, and inflammation of the optic nerve head. Um, now, this would um, generally be associated with some symptoms. You know, the patient, uh, when, they're, when they have an active optic neuritis, 
would have a reduction in acuity. Um, it, it, it tends to happen at one eye rather than both, um, almost exclusively. And um, sometimes patients actually get some retrobulbar pain when they are sort of actually in, uh, having an episode. So it's very rare for MS patients to suffer from optic neuritis and be completely unaware of it. Um, but I think it's, it, it is something that all of my MS patients are kind of super sensitive about. And some of them will have had episodes of optic neuritis. And they really just want that reassurance that there hasn't been any deterioration in, in the optic nerve since their last visit. So it's it, it, you know clearly it's good to uh, to look for active optic neuritis if the patient has symptoms. But really, um, a, a lot of my patients just like to have that OCT, OCT done sort of every couple of years, just really so that they can um, go home feeling happy that there hasn't been any uh, deterioration in. Uh, in their ocular health. And, and I think we had another question, I think, on, um, you know, differential diagnosis of, of optic nerve head uh, problems. So um, we're looking really at differential diagnosis here. Um, optic neuritis is the obvious thing we'd be looking for in MS patients. But of course, you know, you might have a, a crowded optic nerve head. Um, we have patients with optic nerve head drusen, which can certainly mimic more sinister optic nerve changes but are actually uh, innocuous. Uh, and then, of course, the thing that everybody fears, and that's papilledema. So um, quite difficult to describe the di how to differentially diagnose those um verbally, um, I think what I'd like to do is really refer people back to um, the OCT um, online resources that we did last year. I did a couple of online courses for the college um, which are still available on the website on OCT interpretation and management. Um, there's part one and part two, and I'm afraid I can't remember which, which one the optic nerve head uh, one came into, but I, I actually had some OCT scans of some of my patients, uh, one who had optic nerve head drusen, one with optic neuritis, and one uh, of papilledema, and I did a differential diagnosis between the three. So I think probably rather than me wittering on trying to describe uh, what it might look like, um, it'd be far better for people to actually just go back to those resources and have a look. So Polly, that was your Blue Peter moment, your here's one I made earlier. And and so for, <laughs> for listeners, that's on our website and it's uh, it's in the, the CPD area on online learning. And if you look out for the introduction to OCT training course that Polly produced last year all online. Fantastic. Another question. From your case studies, how often do you get feedback from your local ophthalmologists regarding your referrals? Uh -huh. Well, um, so sadly, um, from the NHS, um, never. Um, any private referrals, a few private referrals that we do, um, I always get a very detailed uh, letter back from the consultant. Um, the, the only thing I would say there uh, is that the NHS do now copy patients in on NHS uh, correspondence. So whilst the GP gets a letter and you know it's duly filed and, and, and 
you know, never seen again. The, the patients um, will often have a copy of that. And my patients are generally very good. I always ask them to let me know how they've got on. And lots of them will come in with a copy of their uh, their letter of diagnosis or of discharge if, if um, there wasn't any sort of diagnosis that needed follow-up. And um, we, we always sort of scan those letters onto their notes um, if possible. So, um, but, but it is still sometimes a little bit of guesswork that the patient may not bring their letter in and it, it might just be them explained to me at their next visit in the sort of terms that they understand what's going on with their eyes and um, often that they haven't really been given any formal diagnosis. I just have to kind of um, work out the diagnosis based on what they tell me. You know, if they're taking Lumigan, then I can be fairly certain that my, my tentative diagnosis of open angle glaucoma was correct. So, um, but yeah, still very tricky. So good advice there. And any ophthalmologist listening to this podcast, optometrists love feedback. Yeah, we, will, we want feedback. So I'd encourage you to CC us in and, and let us know what you think about our referrals. Um, next question. So it's quite a technical question here. So if you're performing a scan on the centre ma- macula and if it goes onto the wrong area, how can you readjust that so the scan's on the right area of the macula or the area of interest? Mm. So um, if it's on the wrong area, essentially it's because the patient isn't looking at the very centre of the target. Um, so the target on my particular OCT scanner is a, a diagonal green cross. And I, I'm always very specific to say, you know, look at the very centre of the cross. And for those patients with um, central vision loss, I, I would ask them to imagine where the, the, those two diagonal lines would cross and to, to look where they imagine the centre to be. If you can get um, the, the faville dip central, that really is paramount. Now, clearly you can scan down um, the B scan to, to look for where the faville dip is, but you can't actually uh, recenter the scan uh, that you've already got, so it's always going to be slightly off-centre. Now, a standalone, that really doesn't matter, uh, as long as by looking at the scan you realise, oh gosh, you know, that they clearly weren't looking quite where I thought they were, or maybe a, a, a member of staff done the scan for you, and you're kind of coming to the scan, you know, later in the day to review it. Um, so, so really what I'm trying to say is that to, to look at that individual scan, as long as you can find the faville dip or where it should be and uh, analyse that that scan on a standalone basis that's perfectly fine you don't need to worry about it the the difficulty comes when you want to compare um, that macular scan with one that you do next time or one that you did last time because obviously um, your OCT machine will assume that they're looking uh, in the same place at each time they do the scan so if last year they were looking in the centre and this year they're not then you're not going to be comparing like for like. And that that does become a bit more of an issue. And the only way you can get around that is actually to repeat the scan. Very good advice. Talking cotton wool spots now for the next member. Um, so it's so a quick question, really. Can you see a cotton wool spot on an OCT scan? And what would you do about it? Uh, yes, you, you absolutely can see a cotton wool spot. Um, so I think um, certainly at one of the uh, images I, I showed on... Um, on Tuesday evening, uh, we had a, a, a macular pucker going on, but actually there, there was a cotton wool spot just to the side. Now, my OCT does a fundus photograph 
uh, as well as the OCT image. And I, I really like that about my machine, but I, I'm conscious that not all machines do that. Um, but certainly, uh, you would be able to see a cotton wool spot. Um, it, cotton wool spots are basically build up of axoplasmic material. And so you, you would see that um, uh, on the OCT scan. But of course, when you haven't got a fundus photograph to compare it with, I suppose knowing that that's exactly what you're looking at rather than perhaps um, you know, a, a, a leakage for a, a hemorrhage or something like that would be more difficult. So then you've got to go back to your examination and think, oh, well, yeah, you know, I saw that cotton wool spot there. So that must be what I'm seeing on the OCT scan. So a really nice example of how actually OCT is really not to be used in isolation, but actually it, it supports, there's still the place of funders photography and vault Absolutely. lens and, and seeing yeah. in real colour um, yeah. what's so, happening. So I think that not having a fundus image alongside your OCT scan means that you've really got, you know, you, you've got to have that mental picture of how the fundus looked when you viewed it in in you're consulting them I'm, I'm assuming your OCT scan is in a different room as mine mm -hmm. is but you know I, I will see the patient in my consulting room and then because we have more than one consulting room but only one OCT I actually take them next door to do the scan so obviously you, you've got to hold that mental picture there well I, I saw this at 10 o'clock relative to the disc and and that was there um, whereas if your OCT scan actually takes a fundus photo I think looking at the two together it is is really um, for me that's key because I can just I can sort of see that cotton wool spot and then I can link that to what I'm seeing on the OCT scan I know exactly what it is I'm looking at. Okay really a bit of a cheeky question next which is are all OCTs do they give the same results or is there one that's better than the other? Mm -hmm. um, so um, I, I guess we all get used to whatever we use don't we so so there's quite a bit of variability in, in OCT scanners. Um, I think, um, you know, just the number of scans it takes. Our first OCT scanner took, I think, about um, 40,000 scans per second. We've actually just purchased a new one in the last couple of months. And um, our new one takes over 100,000 scans per second. So obviously the quality of the scan um, in the seven years since we bought our first one has improved dramatically. We've actually stayed with the same brand. And the reason that we stayed with the particular OCT scanner that we have is because that's the one our local hospital uses. So if I um, you know, email over uh, a screenshot of something to the consultant, it's something the consultant's very familiar with. We know, for instance, that consultants don't really like field tests unless they're done on the Humphreys. You know, they're very comfortable with looking at a 24-2 field test result and they get a little bit sort of um, skittish when they're looking at uh, fields from, from other uh, field screeners and just don't trust them in quite the same way, even though as optometrists we know that you know they're comparable. Um, and I think with, with OCT scans, you know, uh, showing your local uh, macular specialist a scan that is used to the scans he's it's similar to the scans he looks at day in day out that's going to be his bread and butter so he's going to be very confident at what he's looking at um and so i think uh when we bought our first scanner we, we just chatted to our local um consultants and said well what are you using in the hospital um and uh so that really was our first 
thought that we would get something similar. We, we looked at lots of different types. I like the fact that TAV has a fundus photograph in order to help to orientate me on the scan, what I'm looking at. But, but, but it's personal choice, really. Um, there are lots of them out there on the market. And, of course, cost is going to play a part as well. So no real definitive answer to that. Okay, so a very good, very good politician's answer there, I think, Polly. And, and and I guess also it's not just about what OCT you have; it's about how it integrates into your practice, the software, as you said, what local hospitals using, and also you, the clinician, you, you know how much time and energy you need to put into the training and interpreting the results. Yeah. Um, yeah. So as important as the machine. So uh, another question. Let's move on. Does dementia make the mid layers thinner? Um, yes, yeah, so there, there is evidence that dementia has an effect on uh, the retinal thickness. Um, certainly, um, uh, Dehan, uh, I think, is the person that's done most of the research on this, and he published uh, a number of papers in 2017, um, and he said that retinal thickness was um, affected um, in patients with, with Alzheimer's, um, and in addition that macular thickness is affected and that there is a thinning, and 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 he um, suggested that this is due to uh, loss of ganglion cells. And so, um, whether whether you simply look at the ganglion cell layer or whether you look at the total retinal thickness, there is a suggestion that uh, a thinner than normal retina uh, and macula could be a sign in, in patients with. Uh, forms of dementia um, but of course simply because somebody has a thin retina doesn't mean to say they have dementia it, it you know likelihood is that um, you know it's just because uh, they're myopic or something like that perhaps that the retina is a little bit thin so, so watch this space read the research yeah I, absolutely in fact I, I I was reading something very recently as a family member my, my, my mother has uh, quite severe dementia so it's something that I have a very personal interest in and um, I actually read something very recently um, in uh, Nature which was looking at uh, nerve fibre layer thickness and, and they suggested that that, that's going, that is affected as well so I think there's a huge amount of research going on um, and it would be nice to think that at some point, there will be some way that optometrists can be involved in looking at the likelihood of uh, dementia simply by doing an OCT scan. That's, that's quite an exciting thought, but, but not quite yet. So uh, a really interesting question here uh, about hyporeflective materials. So when you're seeing those hyporeflective areas, so dark areas, is there any yeah. way or any tips that you can give us about how you would distinguish what they are or what material they may be? Yeah, so obviously... Um, Hypo-reflective, um, we're going to get a shadow um, from blood vessels, certainly. So um, if you've got uh, a leakage from a blood vessel uh, or just the blood vessel itself, you're going to see a shadow underneath it. If you've got some um, fibrotic tissue or scar tissue, that will tend to hyper-reflect. So, um, yeah, I, I guess um, it, it depends. I think, again, having the fundus photo to help um, work out what you're looking at would, would be a big help. But, um, yes, yeah, so certainly blood blood vessels uh, hypo-reflect. Anything with blood, uh, you're going to get a shadow or a dark area. Um, any fibrotic tissue, any um, 
damage like that, then it would tend to hyper-reflect. So um, question 17, a, a technical um, question now, really, about record-keeping. How, how, how do you manage that? Do you keep separate records? Do you make a note on the OCT scan? Do you actually record that you've assessed the OCT scan? How do you manage that? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you, you've got the OCT scan there as evidence that you did do it. But as I always like to make a, a record... Um, make a note on the patient's record simply because um, it's for me um, it's evidence to me personally that I have actually looked at that scan um, I do a lot of scans myself um, within the, the eye examination but um, if I haven't got time to do the scan myself or it's a patient where I know I'm going to have to uh, dilate them, perhaps we book them back for it. You know, for whatever reason, if I'm not doing the scan at the time of the eye examination, um, it, it's possible that one of uh, the ancillary staff in the practice would actually carry out the scan for me. And so um, I think it's really uh, super important in terms of record keeping that I make a note about, you know, my... my uh, my, my findings by uh, actually looking at the scan and um, I think it's important to include those on the patient record. For us, um, you know, I, I can I can look at scans in the consulting room even though the ROCT is elsewhere. Uh, we're able to access the, the scans but actually having something on the patient record as well, uh, you know, helps to remind me that it's there. Okay, that's really useful advice. I think well, our final question, and actually a really nice one to end on, would you have any top tips or advice for people new to OCT in how they can increase and build their clinical confidence in the area? Sure. Um, well, I think um, I think number one would just be practice, practice, practice. You know, I, I remember I, I, I'm old enough that uh, when I first qualified um, direct ophthalmoscopy, was really the only way we had of uh, looking at, at uh, the fundus and uh, learning how to be confident with a Volk lens. Uh, you know, the first couple of times I used it, I really thought I'd never be able to do it. And it is just about practice, practice, practice. And, and uh, certainly carrying out an OCT is infinitely easier than, than mastering Volk. Interpreting OCT is really, the, the, that's the difficult bit. And I think it's, it's about um, really understanding what you're looking at and uh, understanding the limitations of the instrument itself. And so do lots of scans, but then look at them really, really carefully, you know, looking at the image quality, looking at whether there were floaters there, all those things that we've talked about. Um, I, I did a, a webinar for the college back in April this year where actually a good half of that webinar was, was really about um, interpretation of, of uh, OCT scans. And I think for anyone starting out, I would really recommend you going to the college website and having a look at that. I certainly touched upon it on Tuesday, but I think I did a lot more on that in my previous webinar. So that that's I hope would have some pointers in how to know if you've got a good scan and, and how to interpret those scans. Um, I think we can't um, overemphasize the importance of peer discussion. So um, for those of you who work in practice with other optometrists, you know, 
just get them to look at your scans and ask to see their scans. We, um, in my practice, there are there are four optometrists, and uh, we have a, a little list. Um, it's an anonymized list, simply with the patient ID number and uh, what what we saw on the scan. And um, you know, when when I go into practice, I have a little look to see what my colleagues might have seen. You know, in, in the couple of days that I haven't been there, have they seen something interesting? Because there's always something new to learn. And um, sort of once every two or three months, we get together and we we actually. Uh, spend an evening, this is how sad we are, we, we spend an evening uh, showing each other some interesting cases we've had um, uh, over a pizza. And, and actually, uh, it's great because it's, it's very non-confrontational. You know, we're, we're all just talking as friends and colleagues, you know, I, I wasn't quite sure what to do about this. I ended up doing that. What do you all think? That's that kind of thing. Um, and I think the final thing is to get involved in any forums that um, are available, either within perhaps your practice network. I know some of the multiples have their own forums. Certainly all of the um, OCT manufacturers, uh, Topcon and Heidelberg, have forums and some of the um, independent sector people like Sightcare and so on. So find yourself an OCT forum where you can just sort of, you know, even if you're... Um, a silent onlooker for a bit, you know, to look at other people's OCTs and, and you know, gain confidence by looking at the the, the, the uh, sort of the banter going on about what, what this could be and so on. And, and, I, and finally, um, certainly uh, a lot of the OCT uh, manufacturers, Zeiss and Topcon, uh, run OCT courses. And uh, I've been to a number of these over the years and, and found them really invaluable. So some really good advice there. So Polly, thank you so much for giving up some time out of your day off to answer those questions. And for listeners, get your pizzas um, ordered and, and and set up your OCT and pizza party to get chatting about your OCT cases in practice. Thank you very much for listening and um, look forward to speaking to you again after our next webinar. Thank you very much for listening to another webinar extra. For more college podcasts, head to the college website or just keep refreshing this feed every five seconds until another one appears. And please do also like, rate and subscribe and we'll speak to you again soon.